invite you to open your Bible to Revelation chapter 21 as we look at the beauty of the bride of Christ. Revelation chapter 21, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 9, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. In Revelation 21, we've come to the end of human history and the beginning of the new world. Uh, we, uh, in last week, in the verses 1 through 8, we saw Jesus showing us the place that he's prepared for his bride, as was customary in, uh, in, in those days. And now uh, we see the bride herself, beginning at verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Just a reminder that this is all figurative, um, symbolic language, and we'll unpack it as we go through. So don't get hung up in uh, the imagery, but try to get a sense of, uh, of what it's speaking to us, and we'll talk of that through. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. On the east, three gates. On the, excuse me, on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the streets of this, the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in this city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp, lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. <coughs> Our God in heaven, we, we come now before this scripture, which is um, it's an, it's a, a genre we're not familiar with, and yet we thank you that the Holy Spirit can... Uh, help us to understand. And so we pray, Lord, that we would see what you want us to see. And um, above all, that we would see the beauty of our Savior, who is, is making us into this perfect, glorious bride. 
and that we would love him. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we start this morning, we need to, again, just set the text in its context, its historical context. As I said, uh, here at, in chapter 21, uh, we've come to the end of human history and the beginning, or, or the history of this world, I should say, and the beginning of the history of the world to come. Uh, the Bible ends as it began way back in Genesis with a sinless groom and a spotless bride uh, bound together in the bonds of holy matrimony in the presence of God. And so the, uh, just as this earth began with a wedding, uh, so too the, the world to come, the new earth, is going to begin with a wedding. In every wedding, uh, there are two moments that are the most um, anticipated, the two highlights, in a sense, of every wedding ceremony. One of those moments is the exchange of vows and the first matrimonial kiss. Uh, people will often break out into cheering and clapping when, when that happens. Um, what is the other moment, the highlight of the wedding, the thing that people most want to see? I, I think um, it is the entrance of the bride. Uh, you've, you've seen it, of course. You've been to a wedding. All the guests are seated. Uh, the musicians are playing beautiful music. The candles are flickering with their warm, soft light. Uh, the bridesmaids and groomsmen are all arrayed up front, dressed in their finest attire. The flowers are magnificent. Uh, the pastor and the groom have taken their place in uh, center, uh, center aisle. And uh, the anticipation is palpable. And then uh, the music swells, and the, the doors in the back of the auditorium open, and the audience rises as one, and here comes the bride. It's a, it's a wonderful moment. And the, uh, everyone's looking at the bride, and, and she's beautiful. She's always beautiful. Uh, her face is beaming with joy. There, there's usually um, her eyes are wet with tears when she gets down uh, to the front. And a hush falls over the audience as though they were in the presence of something holy, which of course they are. Last week, uh, John showed us the new heaven and earth, a place that Jesus, the bridegroom, has prepared for his bride. And this morning, Jesus shows us the bride. In all of her resplendent beauty, in all of her glory, as she is presented to Christ, her King. Now, the text that we have this morning is apocalyptic literature at its densest and finest. This, uh, this passage is just saturated specifically with Old Testament allusions. Uh, references to Old Testament literature. We're, we, I'm not going to have the time this morning to show you every place the Old Testament is being referenced. Uh, that would be a great study for you, easily done uh, with any um, commentary or just the notes of your own Bible. But uh, we, I want to see the main things. They're beautiful things. And the first thing that we want to see is something that would not maybe be immediately obvious to you, and that is that there is a stark contrast being presented to us uh, between this bride, this woman, and another woman. Uh, it, to see that, you have to turn back just a few pages to chapter 17. In chapter 17, uh, John is uh, shown another woman, And the language is almost identical to verses 9 and 10 of uh, chapter 21. 
So Revelation chapter 17, verse 1, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on the earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and it had seven heads and ten horns. Notice how close that language is to uh, what we have here in uh, 21, where we have uh, the same identification of the angel, one of the angels who had seven bulls full of seven plagues. We have the same invitation of the angel, come and I will show you. In 17, he took John to a desert, a wilderness. Here in 21, he takes John to a great and high mountain. Both revelations have a woman as the focal point. Uh, both revelations speak about the, final, the, the, the character of these women and their final destiny. And this is where uh, we see that all the similarities are meant to highlight the vast difference between these two women, the prostitute, the harlot of Babylon, and the bride of the Lamb. The harlot in uh, chapter 17, uh, she's sitting on a scarlet beast. Uh, the beast that is ally, uh, allied with the red dragon. She is full of blasphemous names. Uh, she looks externally beautiful, purple and scarlet, gold, jewels and pearls. But she's holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. Uh, the harlot of Babylon, which stands for the spirit of the world as it is opposed to Christ, it, she is shot through with blasphemy, with perversion, with uh, sexual immorality particularly. She is, um, she's, she, she's allied with the beast. She belongs, she's been marked with the mark of the beast. She belongs to the devil's kingdom. And as we saw in chapter 19, she, is, uh, she receives the devil's penalty, his judgment. She is cast into the sea uh, of fire. Well, that is meant to now just throw into sharp relief, great contrast, the glory and beauty and destiny of the bride of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> She's revealed here in all of her beauty and her honor and her joy. Um, she's being presented to Jesus Christ, given to him as his bride. And so on the last day, the, the destinies of the those who belong to the prostitute and those who belong to the church just diverge dramatically. For the harlot, it is the last day is a day of judgment. For the church, the last day is her wedding day. Could not be possibly different. And just to remind you, every one of you belongs to one or the other and every one of us on that last day will either receive the destiny of the harlot or we will receive the destiny of the bride. There's no other options. That's it. So Jesus now here wants us to see in stark relief, great contrast with the destiny and character of the harlot, he wants us to see the character and the destiny of the bride. And what follows then is this wonderful um, apocalyptic literature full of images, symbols, Old Testament allusions, uh, but there are three things that we're just going to highlight uh, as we look at this painting in a sense, three things to see about the bride, her splendor, her security, and her sanctity. 
Her splendor, her security, and her sanctity. Notice first her splendor. Verse 10, he carried me in away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, a clear as crystal. Uh, the image that comes as, as we look at the bride is a, a creature, a being, a, a city that is just luminescent. It's glowing. It's brilliant. It's dazzling. It's defined by beauty and light. And John tries to grasp for human words and, and likenesses. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Now, it was a while ago that we were in chapter 4, but in chapter 4, we, we find very, very similar language as John tried to describe the one who was sitting on the throne. Chapter 4, verse 3, says that the one who was sitting on the throne had the appearance of jasper, and at his feet there was a sea like glass, like crystal. Well, that, of course, was Jesus. You see, what, what we're being told here in chapter 21 is that the bride on that day will look like Jesus, will look like her Lord. We have another allusion to that, verse 18, when, when we're told that the walls of the city are built with jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The church bears the likeness of Christ. What, as John tried to explain Jesus, now he's using exactly the same images and terms to explain the bride. Jesus has been successful in making his church full of sinners. He, is, he has successfully accomplished his redemptive task in making them like himself. She is full of the glory of God. She is so full of the light the brilliance and the radiance of God, that the sun is unnecessary. Boys and girls, uh, every once in a while, uh, the next time you see the sun, maybe I'll say it this way, <clears throat> um, carefully, just notice how beautiful it is. Don't look right at it, it'll, it'll, it'll hurt your eyes. It's too bright for that. But, but the sun is such a significant, the sun is, is what gives us light. The sun gives us warmth, and, and um, uh, we live in its light. Well, the, the, the text is saying that we won't need the sun in the new heaven and new earth because the light of the glory of God is its light. Verse 23, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Now, uh, notice the text doesn't say there won't be a sun or moon. It says there won't be a need of sun or moon. So you don't want to make this a litmus test of orthodoxy, right? What do you believe about uh, what will happen to the sun and the moon? We don't, I don't think the text is meant to tell us that. It says there's no need for it because the light of the glory of God is throughout the entire city. And notice also, just quickly, the distinction between the Father and the Son. The glory of God, the Father, gives the light. The Lamb is the lamp. In other words, as we see in all of Scripture, the glory emanates from the Father, but it is revealed and magnified and cast and manifested 
through the Son. It is through Jesus that we see the light of the glory of the face of God. But what Jesus wants us to see here is the bride as she shines with the glory of God. Were we to see the church today as she will be on that day, we would be tempted to worship her. She'll be that beautiful. And that's extremely important for us as we live as the church and in the church today because let's be honest, the church today doesn't look like that, like what it would look like on that day. And Jesus is well aware of this. Remember, the book starts with seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor. And what did those letters reveal? Well, they revealed a church that was full of warts and blemishes and sins and failures and weaknesses. Everyone. So, so Ephesus uh, is, uh, they were good at theology, if you remember, but They'd lost their love for Christ and for the mission of Christ. Their their orthodoxy had made them insular and cold. And Jesus rebukes them for it. Thyatira was much more warm, much more loving. You would have loved the church in Thyatira. The problem was they they were squishy on truth and purity. They tolerated a woman who was a false teacher and led people into sexual immorality. Jesus rebukes them for that. Sardis had a great reputation, fantastic church, vibrant, but was actually dead and worldly. Laodicea had a wonderful building, uh, terrific programs, but was full of pride and self-sufficiency with very little engagement in the surrounding uh, culture, so there was no persecution, and Jesus says, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Only two of the seven churches received only commendations from Christ, but they were so small and weak and persecuted and poor. Kevin Young says, Revelation has the most exalted view of the church in heaven and the most realistic view of the church on earth. And that's exactly right. This is the church as it is revealed in the seven letters, right? The church today has all the blemishes and warts and weaknesses uh, uh, that we see here, e- even Harvest Church. We do some things really well. Uh, we struggle like every church in other areas. We have a fair grasp of theology, probably better than the average American evangelical. But we struggle to love people who aren't like us. Prayer and evangelism are constant uphill climbs. Hurtful things happen, people fall through the cracks. Some have a hard time fitting in. Singles can get easily overlooked. Cliques get formed. People get left out. Sundays can even be hard. There's so many kids and not enough space, and the music is too, and you can fill in the blank. So when people complain about Harvest Church, about the people, programs, or the pastor... It's not, it's not that they're necessarily wrong, right? They, I seldom hear a complaint that's just completely out, out of left field. There's usually aspects of truth, and sometimes it's, it's just pure truth. It's not that they're wrong. They're often exactly right. They're just not seeing the whole picture. Of course the church has its flaws. The church is still in this world made up of deeply flawed people, like the person complaining. 
But the wonderful encouragement of Revelation chapter 21 is that it is this flawed and imperfect church that is the bride of Jesus Christ. It is this flawed and perfect church that will one day radiate with the glory of God. As long as this church holds fast to the groom, as long as we remain faithful to his teaching, as long as we abide in his love and pursue his mission, no matter how weak and flawed we seem today, this church, with all the church of Jesus Christ, will one day be presented spotless, beautiful, radiant with glory. That's incredible to me. I hope it's incredible to you. The second thing John wants us to see is the security of the church. Because this, uh, the imagery shows magnificent stability, and, and that's reflected uh, in the gates and the foundations and the walls of this city. So verse 12, it had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. Verse 14, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them, the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Um, so we're, we're, we're told the city has a wall, a great wall. Uh, the angel has a measuring rod, and uh, he measures the, the city, and it's 12,000 stadia uh, in length and width and height. It's a cube. Uh, uh, 12,000 stadia is about 1,400 miles. So think Colorado City, Colorado, or um, um, Fort Lauderdale would be very, very close. Quite a, quite a distance. That's how large, right, John sees this city. Um, and it's also that, that high, so that would be into the orbits of uh, some man-made satellites. But of course, these numbers are symbolic. If you're looking for a city that's actually that big, uh, you're missing the point. They're, it's all symbolic. The, 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 the city is saturated with the numbers 12. Uh, gates uh, have the names of the uh, 12 tribes of Israel. Foundation has the, the names of the 12 apostles. The, the, the dimensions themselves. It's 12 everywhere. Why 12? Well, because that's the church. That's the number of the church. This is describing the church. And, and so the image of the great wall is not meant to communicate size as much as stability and security. And everyone reading it in those days would have immediately understood that. In those days, the security of a city was dependent on its walls. Um, if you, just, you could have a nice little town, but if you didn't have walls, your nice little town was going to get ransacked. And so kings would display their power. In fact, it's often recorded in the annals of their, of their works. What did they do to the walls? Well, they built up the wall here. They built up the wall there. Great cities have great walls. But unfortunately, walls crumble, and walls get breached, and gates get left open, and, and, and some people even have the cleverness to, to close off the river, and so they, the, the soldiers come in under the wall through the riverbed. That's how Babylon, Babylon fell. So cities are, no matter how big the wall, how great the wall, cities are vulnerable, and at one time, every great city has fallen. Not this city. It's absolutely impregnable. These walls cannot be breached primarily because there is no enemy to breach them. The enemy has been destroyed, gone, never to reappear. And so everything about this bride speaks about the security of the bride. The walls cannot be shaken or fall. A wall is only as good as its foundations. This wall has 12 foundations. 
And the names of the apostles are written there, Peter and James and John. Why? Because uh, the apostles, as they bore witness to Jesus Christ, the teaching of the apostles is the foundation on which the church stands. Paul says that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So the church is built on the truth of Jesus Christ in all of his person, in all of his work, and because that truth will never change, that foundation will never crumble. The church will stand and flourish forever. Because, you see, that truth is not just a truth, it's Jesus. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. Cannot be shaken. And there's no danger in this city. So you have 12 gates. Gates would often be vulnerable places, but these gates have an angel, mighty angel at every gate. But, but you don't really need the angels there because um, the gates are left open day and night, the, all the time. In fact, there's no night there. Again, I don't, I'm not sure that that is meant to be taken literally, it's in the middle of a lot of figurative, symbolic language. I think what it communicates is there's no danger. Night is when thieves break in. Night is when uh, there's, there's sexual immorality. Night, night is when evil uh, seems to flourish. There's no night in the new heaven and the new earth. There's never any danger of any sort, in any way, at any time, in all eternity, in the new heaven and the new earth. There's never a threat to God's holy city, to God's precious bride. Think of what that means. Today our lives are surrounded with threats. Danger, illness, accidents. Um, we're almost defined by threats in our attempts to protect ourselves from them. And in the new heaven and new earth, the city, uh, the new city, there will be no threats at all ever in any way. But the final, I think, aspect is the most beautiful aspect. That's the aspect of sanctity. Holiness. And that word has two aspects to it, both moral purity and being set apart. And the best illustration I think we have of that is the marriage bed itself. There's, there's something uniquely holy about marriage and the marriage bed. The intimacy of the marriage bed only works in the context of sanctity. And that's in both aspects of the word. So it only works when there's moral purity. If the husband or wife introduce perversion into the marriage bed, it is a deep wound to the marriage. It only works if there is a separateness. When the, when the couple is faithful to keep themselves, their bodies, their sexual experiences for each other and each other alone because their bodies belong to each other. And so there's a holiness to the marriage bed that is to be honored, as we read in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Well, the bride of Jesus is holy in both these senses, holy in moral purity and holy in separateness. The moral purity we see in all the jewels and the gold, the, uh, the, 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 the crystal. I mean, this, this city just gleams with the splendor of God's holiness. And so you have in verse 19 the, the 12 precious jewels, the same jewels that were found on the breast piece of the high priest. Holy, holy, beautiful. Um, even the gates, the, the city is so pervaded with this moral purity that even the streets and the gates are gold. Can you imagine? The gates are made of, of pearl, complete 
pearl. Um, now, again, it's imagery, but it means even the mundane things. You don't make city gates out of pearl. Well, this city you do. The streets are gold. Not literally, but gold-like transparent glass. The most mundane aspect of the city is radiant with moral purity. Um, in verse 27, we're told nothing unclean will ever enter into it. So just imagine being a part of that. Be, imagine being part of radiant, spotless, moral purity, like Jesus is. Like we already have been given in Christ through his righteousness given to us, but, but one day we'll experience that through and through. As we radiate with the glory and the purity of God. And as wonderful, as, as compelling as that is, I think the other aspect of holiness is even more stunning. That we'll be set apart to God and for God to live in perfect communion and intimacy with Him as His people and His bride forever. This, this, uh, this image could easily be missed, but it's picked up in the, in the cubed nature of the city. So we have this, this magnificent 1,400-mile cube. There's only one other place in the Bible that we have a cube. I wonder if you know where that is. be a good uh, trivia question. It's found in 1 Kings 6.20, where Solomon is building the temple. And you read this, the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long and 20 cubits wide and 20 cubits high, and he overlaid it with pure gold. In other words, the only other cube we find in Scripture is the temple, the most holy place of the temple, the inner sanctuary of the temple where God himself dwells in such perfection and holiness that no sinful man is, is ever allowed into it only the high priest, only once a year, and only in order to make sacrifice and sprinkle blood on the altar. But here, John uh, and Jesus actually is telling us that not only will his bride be allowed into the most holy place, but that the bride is the most holy place. Just, just let that settle on you. The bride is where God dwells, where God is present in all his perfection, in all of his glory. Nothing between God and his people. We become the place of infinite glory and intimacy, the place where Jesus Christ and his precious people commune in the bliss of eternal love. And the Bible doesn't blush to say it. It's overwhelming what Jesus has in store for us. Now, why would Jesus tell us these things? He wants us to know who we are as the church, his people. We're the precious and betrothed bride of Christ waiting for our wedding day. There are certain, um, there are certain pains that go uh, for a bride waiting for her wedding day. There's lots of preparations to be made, lots of things to do. There's the anticipation and, and uh, wanting and longing for that day to come near, but there's nothing to do but wait and make yourself ready. Well, that's exactly how Jesus wants us to see ourselves. Um, he wants us to be preparing, waiting for our wedding day, and he wants us to know what, what we're going to look like on that day. By the grace and power of God, this will happen to us. 
If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you've confessed your sin, if you've joined the church, the bride of Jesus Christ, Jesus wants you to know this is what will happen to you. This is our destiny. And our bridegroom is coming soon. But friends, Jesus doesn't tell us these things just to encourage us. It's undoubtedly to encourage us, but it's also to motivate us. I picked this up in Greg Beale's commentary on the book of Revelation, and he shows that this text uh, serves the primary purpose of the entire book of Revelation. Uh, he notes specifically the contrast that we spoke of first. He says the primary point of the contrast between the prostitute and the bride and the primary point of the book as a whole is to exhort the faltering church plagued by compromise with the prostitute to stop compromising and increasingly reflect the facets of their coming consummated excellence in anticipation of it. In other words, just as Jesus said to the seven churches, here's what I see, here's what we need, needs to be repented of, here's what needs to change, hold fast, don't give up, endure, I'm coming soon. He who conquers, I will give the inheritance. That's what Jesus says to us. We live in a world that tempts us constantly. We live with a flesh that tempts us constantly. We live with a devil that tempts us constantly. And Jesus is saying to you, his bride, his church this morning, don't compromise. Remember who you are. Remember whose you are. Remember the glory that you are headed for. You don't belong in a fundamental way to the spirit of this world. Don't compromise with the spirit of this age. Be examining how... Um, in what ways you might be doing that. And, and then look for and prepare yourself for this wonderful return of Jesus Christ. Friends, this morning we come to the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do it because Jesus commanded us to do it. Why did Jesus tell us to do this? So that we would remember him. Do this in remembrance of me. And it's not just to remind us of what he did in the past but, but to, to remember all that that means for us in the future and all the significance then of that for us today. At the table this morning, right, Jesus, our bridegroom, calls us to prepare ourselves to meet him. To put away any compromise with the world, to repent of our sin, to cling to his gospel, hold to his teaching and truth, but hold primarily to him, to abide in his love. As he reminds us this morning, our bridegroom, Jesus, reminding us he loves us, assuring us that he's coming back and that he's going to take us to be with him forever in a place that he's prepared for us. It's very, very holy. I'd like to take just a few moments for you and for me to prepare ourselves to meet Jesus then at his table. I'd like you to just take some moments just to... Think about your sin, your life. Think about things that Jesus maybe is calling you to let go of this morning. Sins to repent of, forgiveness to be granted, grudges to be let go. He knows. He's speaking to you this morning because he loves you. And prepare your heart then to come in faith and repentance to his table to commune with him. Let's take some time to pray.
Lord Jesus, you know your people. Some of us this morning are trapped in a besetting sin that we long to be freed from. We confess with tears our hunger for holiness, our grief over failing. And we thank you that the gospel is sufficient. Lord, some of us today are, we've lost sight of who we are and whose we are. And we've gotten very busy about all the things of this life and paid very little attention to the life to come. Some of us, Lord, have carried grudges that we need to let go. Some of us have forgiveness to grant to those who've sinned against us. Some of us have forgotten the nature of the church and we've grown impatient with her because she's not what she ought to be. And we've forgotten that one day she will be. And Lord, we have all in one way or another forgotten about Jesus. The one who loved us and gave his life for us. And we've made ourselves the center of our world and we've relied upon our abilities and we've nurtured our desires and our hurts. But we've not been about the cause of Christ or taken joy in the love of Christ or comfort from his presence and his promises. And so thank you, Lord Jesus, that you call us to remember because this is what we've forgotten. And now, Lord, as we come to the table, I pray that your spirit would, Lord, mold our hearts into the likeness of Christ, our Savior and our Lord, the lover of our soul. For Jesus, you promise to be with us and to feed us with food that satisfies and transforms. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to ask the elders to come forward.